Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu forward slash C-H-E-E to learn more. Today's episode is a very special one. This was a roundtable conversation that Explore the Space did in collaboration with the Society of Hospital Medicine and the Journal of Hospital Medicine that was recorded at the height of the winter 2022 COVID surge titled Doctors, Hospitals, and the Resurgent Pandemic. We had three incredible panelists, and I was delighted to be able to host this event. Dr. Sharmila Disanayaka, Dr. Adara Landry, and Dr. Samir Shah joined me, and we reflected on experiences, insights, and hope for a different and better future moving forward as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve. This was a really incredible hour, and I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from them. My thanks also to the Journal of Hospital Medicine and the Society of Hospital Medicine for collaborating and supporting this effort. It was a lot of fun, and I think this was really valuable. Please do check out the entire archive of the Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. We're on all the usual podcast platforms. Please do subscribe and give us a rating and review. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. I hope we never have to do a roundtable like this again, or if we do, it's reflecting on our myriad successes. However, it was important for us to be able to gather, answer some questions, and have some discussion and some community around what we were all experiencing. So here we go with our roundtable conversation, doctors, hospitals, and the resurgent pandemic with Dr. Sharmila Disanayaka, Dr. Adara Landry, and Dr. Samir Shah. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thank you all so much for being here. I am delighted to have you all here, and I'm excited to start this conversation on doctors, hospitals, and the resurgent pandemic. I am Mark Shapiro. I will be the host of this panel conversation. I'm a hospitalist in California. I'm the host of Explore the Space podcast. I'm on Twitter at ETS show, and we will be having some live tweeting going on. If you want to tweet out what you see, please do so. Just use hashtag ETS chat, and then we can follow along. Um, We are recording this, and so the recording will go out as an Explore the Space podcast episode, the audio only. Um, but yeah, definitely excited to have you all here. We've got a full hour together. And so for all of those of you who are joining us, thank you for being here. Thank you for making the time. The chat box is open. Please throw your questions in there. Um, please throw your ideas in there. And what we will do is I want to introduce our panelists, but I want to just sort of set the stage a little bit. We wanted to set this up as, some, as a place for us to really to come together, spend a little bit of time together, um, share some ideas, share some experiences and some stories and find that right balance of expressing ourselves and, and, and venting a bit, but also looking for things that are constructive, things that are tangible, things we could potentially take back to our teams, to our divisions, to our communities that feel actionable, that feel 
feel like we could actually try to implement or really make a push to try to do things so that we can make this better as we go forward, acknowledging that we're still in the midst of this pandemic and we are going to be um, we're going to be continuing to deal with it. So in that space, throw your ideas into the chat box. Please share your questions in the chat box. If you put a question in the chat box and you're on Twitter, if you want to share your Twitter, your uh, share your Twitter handle, I will be sure to shout that out as well. So having said all that, that's our housekeeping stuff. Our panelists, holy smokes. We have three incredible panelists. And the concept here is we've got multiple different specialties, multiple different scopes of expertise, and different regional uh, regional practices, different parts of the country. So first, we have Dr. Sharmila Disanayaka. She's the Peter C. Canizaro Chair and University Distinguished Professor at Texas Tech University Health Sciences in Lubbock. She is a clinically active trauma, burn, and acute care surgeon. She's won dozens of awards. She's held multiple national leadership and quality assurance roles. She's incredible on Twitter at Disanayaka MD. She just gave a keynote that just rippled all over our med Twitter environment a couple of weeks ago on the subject of burnout, where she is as powerful, as resonant as anyone that we have out there. Sharmila, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And I think, you know, maybe I really appreciate that kind of introduction, but I'm also a frontline trauma, burn, critical care, acute care surgeon. And That's right. honestly, I'm probably going to be speaking from that voice more than anything else, uh, because I think, you know, it's those who are actually on the front lines, uh, all of us who've been uh, hurt the most from the pandemic. That's right. That's right. And, and I think that's the place that we want people to, to, to see and feel is that all of us that are here are people who are actually out there doing the work amidst everything else, amidst the busyness of our whole lives. Next up on our panel, Dr. Samir Shah is here. He is a professor of pediatrics. He's a pediatric hospitalist and infectious disease specialist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where he is also the director of hospital medicine and holds the James Ewell Endowed Chair there. And he is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hospital Medicine and the Journal of Hospital Medicine, Society of Hospital Medicine, and Explore the Space podcast came together to do this. Dr. Shaw also recently released his first trading card. Are you kidding me? Signed and numbered. Thank you very much. Samir, welcome. Hey, thank you. Really excited to be here. Samir is, is a great person to collaborate with, at Samir Shaw, MD, on Twitter. Uh, and, and it's just a real treat to have you here. Thank you for being here. And finally, we have Dr. Adara Landry. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. She is the Harvard Medical School Society Advisor and is now in, uh, helping to supervise over 40 medical students. She's the chair for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And she's a former assistant residency director for the Harvard-affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency Program. She is doing tons of work around mentorship, coaching, how to do this on the individual level, how to scale it. She writes for um, our, she, she writes for all kinds of publications around it. Adara, welcome. Thanks, everyone. I'm really excited to be here. And thanks to you, Mark, for the invitation. This is going to be great. I want to take some time to look through the participants when I get the chance. But uh, as we go forward, so I want to shout out some of our friends that are here. But please do put your comments and your your um, your questions into the into the chat box and, and let's get started. We, we have we have Texas in the South represented. We have Ohio and the, the, the Northeast represented. We have Boston and the East Coast represented. We have California represented. So obviously, this is a very heterogeneous place that we come from. Adara, I want to start with you. Strategically, when you're when you're in the hospital in the middle of winter, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of residency interview season, in the middle of all of these different things, 
what are the places that feel like pillars of strength for you? And what are the places where you look around and just get that chill of this is a huge problem? Um, I think people give me strength, honestly, um, the ability to connect to others, um, patients, my colleagues on the front lines with me, um, my family, all of these people give me different um, sources of inspiration. I think patients really need us when they come to the emergency room. It's obvious. They need us to give reassurance, to give treatment, to help them connect to the correct consultant they might need. But there's a clear need and um, that that gives me a lot of purpose. And I know that over the last two years, there's been a lot of struggle with, you know, medical um, with medical misinformation that's causing a lot of mistrust in the medicine um, community, the medical community. But I still feel like for the vast majority of patients, they are there because they're seeking our help. I think when it comes to our colleagues, I get a lot of strength, but I also have a lot of concern. I have a lot of concern about our nursing colleagues who um, I have found personally leaving the field of emergency medicine um, or, or taking positions as travelers. And I can totally understand all the incentives to do that, but it leaves us on a very large scale longing for what was once there. I was on a recent shift and I, I was walking around literally um, in my pod and I was like, I recognize very few of the nurses I'm working with. And um, that's a, that's a really odd feeling just because I, I, for this particular hospital, I would go to work and I would feel this sense of, of comfort knowing that if something bad happened, I had my team and I knew these nurses and I knew they can, you know, get whatever we needed quickly because they knew the landscape of the emergency department. But now on, on a lot of shifts, many people are new and it's their first day. And that sense of familiarity, you know, it's not just the masks that are there, but it's these people who I don't even know. And they're yeah. great people. I just don't know them. You just don't know them yet. And then to piggyback off of you're amazing on Twitter and sharing the complexities of your surgical practice. That's one of the things I like the most about your Twitter feed, but that is something that obviously requires a really skilled team to help deliver in your, in your current practice, acknowledging, right. Busy on the trauma service, busy on the burn service, busy in the ICU, busy on the acute care surgery service. Are you seeing shifts in the tectonic plates of, of the teams of the quality and of the morale? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, like Tara just said, right? I mean, it's really hard when everyone is brand new all the time. And it's really hard to feel like it's a team when it's mm. a constant rotating mm. uh, cast of characters, you don't build relationships. And I think what there is, you know, for those of us that are in some sort of seniority position, it's difficult because you can't hold people to a very high standard because they're the people left and they don't have, you know, they, they could go in half a second if this was good and they are stressed and, you know, the nurses are three to one, four to one, who in the ICU would have been one to one before, you know, it is, everyone is so stretched thin. You start to have this difficulty going, how much can I expect really? What's wow. reasonable to even ask? And these yeah. questions I've never had before, right? We expect the absolute high standards all the time. That's it. And now you've got like someone who's brand new, someone who's probably one assumes been fast tracked through orientation. What is it really fair to expect? And so, we're all in this difficult situation where we can't hold to our previous standards. And it doesn't matter if all the crisis standards of care or not. That's been kind of one of my pet peeves is that people think that's a thing. And I think that, no, actually, that's a little more honest a reflection of what we can actually do. But instead, we're in this funny time warp where we've led the public to believe or maybe just not made it clear enough that we can't do our normal standards of business as usual. 
we all know it on the inside. And yet there's this disconnect and, and we just struggle every day. It's, it's really difficult. Do you feel like that struggle that you've just described that as you were, as I was listening was really resonating. Is it worsening? Is it at a plateau? Is it better perhaps, or is it kind of a, an up and down journey? I think it's getting worse. We've definitely had more people sick. So that's added to it. Right? The Micron, which I never saw before, the sheer number of people getting sick is ridiculous. I mean, it's like the dominoes falling every day constantly. And it's like you're not even surprised anymore when someone tests positive for COVID. At one point, we had almost half of our OR staff, <laughs> like half. Who would have ever thought you could function with half the staff? And, and so it's just shortages on an unimaginable magnitude while our need stays the same. Uh, so I think it's definitely worse. And, and what it'll be next, I can't predict. I don't know. I've been wrong in every prediction so far, so I don't know. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm out of the prediction game completely yeah. because I, it, I agree. It's of the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Samir, you're in a specialty where obviously the the scrutiny, the tension, the 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 demand I think is is really high. Obviously, working with working in a pediatric hospital, doing pediatric infectious disease during a a, a viral pandemic. What what is your assessment of of just the work of helping take care of kids in this space with the the uh, the pressure that's already kind of baked into it, and now the overlay of do we vaccinate, do we not, do we do all these different things, the the outside scrutiny, the the misinformation that comes from all sorts of different directions. How do, how do you reconcile that when you're at the bedside? Yeah, you know, I think I think my approach and what I see from patients, right, is patients and their families are are worried and they're scared, and they just want to make the best decisions for their child. And, and sometimes there's a little bit of an interesting disconnect where I was seeing a, a young child, less than a year old in the ICU and uh, the mother had to leave. And so she was going to call the unvaccinated grandmother to come and sit with the child. And this child had been admitted for COVID. And, and I had a conversation with the mother about, hey, this, this may not be the wisest decision, I'm a little worried and let me tell you why. And so, you know, mother heard me and said, but I have no choice. And I was like, well, I'm not sure that's quite true. Um, but I do appreciate the, the tension and the stress families are going as they uh, or are experiencing as they navigate this and, and all the um, struggle to, to tease out what's good and valid information from, from what is not. And I think that problem has has just dramatically worsened over the course of the pandemic. I mean, there was always some baseline misinformation, um, but it really feels like over the past, you know, how long is this pandemic going on? Past decade, um, right? That that the problem is so much worse now than it was two years ago. Dara, why is misinformation think, so seductive? Um, well, it's easily available. It's, um, I think it's, um, it feeds into people's fears. And, and I think people actually enjoy feeding into their fear. That's why people love scary movies and scandals and all these things that like this could happen to me. And so I, I think it capitalizes on that psychological vulnerability that we all have. Like this could happen to me, so I better understand it. Something bad could happen to me. Um, I, I want to comment on Samir's point too, which is that I, I spend a lot of time providing education and the way I do it now is so much more, it's so much different than how I did it before. 
I think now I try to make sure that I leave all doors open because I, I, I think when people come into the emergency room on guard, because let's say they're not vaccinated, they don't believe in masks, those sorts of things, they've already read a lot of this misinformation and me trying to just preach to them from a higher level, generally speaking, doesn't work. And so a lot of it is just slow bite size pieces of, of information, but also me asking a lot of questions of them. So I, I try to just sort of expose where they're getting the information from. How do they recognize valid versus invalid information? What is it that's important for them to be reading? And, and really trying to get them to come to the conclusion. Oftentimes they won't in the emergency room. I'll be quite honest. It's a short visit. But my goal is to really try to get them to recognize the possibility that what they're reading is incorrect versus me just telling them that. I think one of the things we're hurting from is that, you know, it's evolved, right? So we preach this whole thing that if we all get vaccinated, everything's going to be fine. And clearly that wasn't the whole story, right? Mm -hmm. Microns blowing through the vaccine, like it's nothing. So that hurts you step by step. And it's one of those things like uh, the famous saying that, you know, the good guys have to be lucky 100% of the time. The bad guys only have to be lucky once. It feels a lot like that. The people peddling misinformation just have to get lucky hit a little bit of data good, whereas those of us trying to do reason scientific evidence have to be consistent. Otherwise, if one thing goes wrong, it's like, oh, they're all lying. Fauci's terrible, blah, blah. And we, we see this happening just continuously that one mistake upsets the whole apple cart. Yep. I, I agree with you completely. Uh, Adara, what you were just describing and um, what, what uh, at freckled PD doc on Twitter uh, Anika Kumar just put in the the your 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 really nice discussion of of how we do shared decision making, especially when we're dealing with so much misinformation. I really appreciate it. I had an experience just this last week that it's one of those ones that's going to stick with me for a while. You know, he's critically ill, super super sick in the COVID unit, um, talking about intubation uh, with the spouse, and and the the question of ivermectin comes up. We're talking about different therapeutic options, and I had a very intense visceral response. And I have kind of a syncopated answer that I get when I'm asked about ivermectin. Um, and I, I came to realize when I was asked about it two more times in the same conversation, the impact misinformation it had on this person was that it gave them a false sense of hope and that they were asking me purely out of desperation. And it made me so sad. It just made me so sad because this person, it wasn't from a place of you all are wrong you all don't know what you're doing. You know, that confrontational thing that I think we've all dealt with. It was, I will, I need anything that you can tell me that will give me a glimmer of hope. If you tell me tree bark, will do the job. We'll go for it. Um, and it just made me so sad because part of the tragedy that I really feel like we're just going to have to unspool is how much misinformation has given people this sense that we have tools at our disposal that actually don't exist. Mm. Samir, is that something that you have to wrestle with when you're working with the parents of your patients as well as the patients themselves? Which which part? The part about reconciling the, the questions about these things that we deem to be disinformation, misinformation, incorrect information is they're coming to it. They're bringing it to us from a place of we're just desperate and we've been fed these things that we think might be an option. Yeah, yeah, that comes up. Quite a bit. And I, you know, I think the lure, the lure of misinformation is is often it and it um offers a simple solution. Mm. Just take this pill. Um, and it also creates enough us versus them, right? The doctors won't tell you um that this that this actually works. 
Um, and I and I think that is alluring in many ways, right? That that there's this secret that we're keeping from them, or that's the that's what people are led to believe. And and as obviously as healthcare providers, boy, if there was something that would cure this that quickly, we would be advocating for it and and handing it out like water. Yeah. I want to talk about physical demand. Um, I want to talk about what your perceptions are of the toll and also the opportunities that you've had in terms of how you're taking care of yourself, but also the impact on you physically. Sharmila, I want to ask you this because um, it's been a while since I've scrubbed into an OR case, but I, when I was a medical student on the trauma service, I went to the OR every chance I could, could do. The room is hot. The, we're wearing lead. We're wearing heavy gear for many hours. You have to be, you know, your dexterity has to be on point. It's a very challenging physical environment. And then you overlay the stress of the pandemic and you're doing it over and over and over again. Do you and your surgical colleagues talk about endurance, not in the place of resilience, but actual physical endurance differently than you used to because of the demands of the pandemic? So actually, no, because, you know, the demands are the demands and no one's a trauma surgeon unless they've already got their way through that. But I would say what is different is remember a whole bunch of us are now post-COVID, right? So I shared my own story that I contracted COVID at work for sure. You know, unfortunately, uh, masking isn't really enforced very strictly for patients and families. It's just a lot of people unmasked and there's so many people with COVID. Our community prevalence, you know, we're a town of 300,000 and we had more than 1,300 new patients uh, last on um, one day last week. It's, it's insane numbers. And so you can imagine the community prevalence, especially when you say that a lot of people are not even being tested, right? So the symptomatology, it's high. And so I caught COVID. And it was right after one of my colleagues caught COVID, of course, and two ICU nurses had caught COVID. So we all got it. I mean, yes, it's everywhere, right? And so here's the problem. So um, I've I've also been fairly open that long COVID really bothers me. It really concerns me what we're doing to an entire generation of people, including very young people and children. What are the effects? And so, you know, my concern is what about these mild cases that aren't so mild, but they have to go back to work in basically five days now because everyone's short-staffed. You know, I was very fortunate that I was scheduled to be on non-clinical for a few more days, and then I had to give the talk at ease, so that worked out. And then I got back to clinical. But I'll tell you that I noticed as I was back to clinical that my heart rate for a given activity in the day was about 10 beats higher than it had been before. So even someone who recovered really well, who was relatively asymptomatic, and at this point, is completely asymptomatic. I didn't feel any different. I had, you know, I could document there was change. And almost all my other colleagues are actually symptomatic still, and they're tired and they take breath. And when I started talking about this, so many surgeons from across the country said, yeah, I had COVID a year ago and I still have unexplained tachycardia and I still get tired more. I mean, one year ago, what are we doing to some of the hardest working people when we've now added COVID and God knows how long that's going to take an effect? That's what I worry about. Trauma surgery hasn't got any harder, still just as hard as it was, but the people are now a little more impaired, right? That's deeply alarming. It is deeply <laughs> alarming. I find it That too. is a profoundly alarming thing to hear and understand. Yeah. It, as it becomes a more normalized part of the discourse, are you starting to hear solutions? Are you starting to hear um, stop gaps? Because it's not like we have a surfeit of acute care surgeons and trauma surgeons and burn surgeons in the United States. How are we going to reconcile this tension? Is this a subject of discussion yet? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all shot stopped. So I was doing a trauma site survey today and we we're talking about how they have been trying to recruit for three years and, and with the, you know, only very mild success. I've got jobs open and finally starting to fill them. Everyone's shot stopped all around the country in trauma. Mm-hmm. 
Um, now, the good news is if you're graduating, uh, Phil, you can probably get some really good <laughs> rates to go all over the country and be a travel locum surgeon. So great. But otherwise, no, this is a huge issue. I mean, obviously, right, we're all talking about the nursing shortage. That's clear. But it's also a physician shortage. I would be very surprised if we don't see for those of us in ER and, you know, frontline health care for urgent care. I think we're going to see a shortage of all of it. Because if I was a med student now or a resident, not sure I'd really be wanting the job that I see being done. That was the, the perfect segue. Is- Adair, I was going to ask you, because you do so much mentorship. You are yeah. obviously right there in the place of working clinically in the emergency department and doing mentorship with people way, way higher up on the pipeline. What are you hearing? What sort of things are coming up from, from those that you work with shoulder to shoulder in the emergency room, but also when you're having your mentorship conversations and working with students? You know, I'm hearing something that's both frightening and reassuring at the same time. And that is many students. And of course, there's a little bit of a sample bias, but I would say that I mentor people outside of HMS as a Harvard Medical School um, pretty frequently. So I have you know students across the country and I'm hearing the same thing with a lot of them, which is I want to be a doctor, but something else as well. A lot of people are already thinking about either their side gig or their plan B or their security blanket, just in case their primary job as a practicing clinician doesn't pan out. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest things is that I'm seeing a lot more requests for opportunities to go to business school, get a second degree um, or a fellowship. I'm I'm seeing more of that than I am just, I want to actually go to the community and be um, a practicing clinician. That's for sure. How do you reconcile the part of it that feels positive to you with the part of it that concerns you? I mean, I think the the thing that's positive, so I don't practice um, medicine exclusive way. So I do a lot of other things and that has allowed me to come to work. And I I just feel happy when I'm at work because I feel like I have a a place to rest. You know, I have time off with my, my, my family, my kids are actually right here. Um, And, um, but I have time to sort of um, reflect on the shifts that I had. I would say before the pandemic, I was working full time and I would just go back to back with shifts, you know, and have long stretches. And those were without times of reflection and debriefing and sleep and, you know, nights out with dinner um, to have dinner. And so I think now I, I have a balance. I hate to use that word because I really don't think work-life balance exists, but I, I have some sort of a symmetry where I'm able to appreciate the work that I do at the bedside but all of my other side interests. So I, I do applaud students who are thinking about being a well-rounded clinician and clinician, thinking about what else their MD or DO can provide for them, because there is more to medicine than just the practice of it at the bedside. Samir, you're the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hospital Medicine. So I would say that is a separate entity from your clinical work. Have you noticed kind of on the scales of where your time is, where your energy goes, where the demands are, acknowledging you're a very engaged uh, editor-in-chief of a big journal, is that changing as the pandemic goes? Do you feel like it's the same? And how do you want to see it going forward? Yeah, I don't know if the if that's changing so much, but, but I think one of the things we've wrestled with uh, during our editorial discussions is, is we're still grading great COVID papers, but are people all COVIDed out? Um, right? Do they want to read about things besides COVID? And and that's a real tough that's a real tough tension to to navigate, because because right we're in the midst of this pandemic, there is so much work that we're receiving that's still very relevant. But I but I do get the sense that people want to move on a little bit, just just so it's not all COVID 
all the time. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm in a region that has really, at least to, to my eye and my perception, I grew up where I live now, bought in and, and really tried to follow guidelines and really, we've had really good vaccine uptake. We've had really good masking uptake. Um, and it's been a, it's been a boon for us. It's, it's allowed us to do things to, to get through this. I think the best that we could, um, I'm also seeing and feeling that, and I totally get it. When, when we had this idea to even do this panel, like, is this going to resonate? I think that because of the kind of the extremity of where we are now, I think it does, but that brings up a really important point. And so I want to ask you, Sharmila, because you're in a place where when I look on social media and when I consume news and things like that in Texas, there's a perception of how the pandemic is being viewed in Texas. Does perception meet reality? And obviously this is just from your perspective, but does perception meet reality when you're inside the hospital or are you kind of rolling your eyes saying, you guys are hammering us. Everyone here is doing their best back off. Yeah. You know, I think going through the pandemic has been a little bit like the five stages of grief, right? We've all gone through them a few times. And a few times. Yeah. I am at the stage, honestly, and I think a lot of us are where we just like, okay, you know, we can keep banging our head against the wall and going nuts about this, or we can just be. And this comes back a little bit to, you know, fundamentally, you know, I, I, my spiritual practice is I'm a Buddhist, I've been meditating for a long time. And really a fundamental part of that is the world is not perfect. You're not here to change the world. The world is here to change you. So at a certain point, we do what we can, but we need to just be. And I have to say, you know, if nothing else, out of the sheer fact that we started this thinking it was an acute crisis and we treated it, myself included, as an acute crisis, and now it's clearly way beyond an acute crisis, I don't know that it's a bad thing to just go, okay, we're going to live the best we can, which means that if you go to the grocery store and you're one of the 10 to 20% of people masked, you just go, okay, that's, this is what it is, and, and that's that. And I'm triple vaccinated, and my husband's triple vaccinated, and we're doing what we can. But at a certain point, Mark, I think it's counterproductive, right? Because this is how burnout starts. If you keep raging against the machine and you're fighting to move the immovable object, you just wear yourself out and then you're no good to yourself and you're no good to anyone else. And so I think at this point, whether perception meets reality or not, and truth be told, do I know what reality is? Do I know if COVID's going to go? If we all did everything 100% correctly, would COVID go? I honestly don't know anymore. So, you know, it makes it a bit easier, right? Admitting what we don't know and doing our best and just leaving the rest up to whatever it plays out is the attitude I've taken. And honestly, it's keeping me a little more sane because the work still has to be done. It's interesting to hear you say that, though, because those points like they, they, they're like antithetical to the way I was trained as a physician. Right. And so hearing you say like, I need to listen to this again so I can really internalize that part because I, I just hearing it, I can see that's where I get friction. This last week on clinical service was absolutely brutal. I'm completely exhausted. Did it have to be all that hard as it was? Right. I don't know. Did, did you add to it? So I'll tell you, there's a story of the two arrows, right? So there's the arrow of the pain, and that is just the sheer exhaustion of dealing with this. But then the second arrow is the frustration and agitation. It's you fighting to say, it shouldn't be this way, damn it. Why is it this way? That's the second arrow. That's the pain you bring to the table. And you can't really do much about the first arrow. It is what it is. But can we, as people who are needed in our communities, perhaps 
not add that second arrow of frustration and anger and agitation because this person in front of me wasn't vaccinated and isn't masking and has COVID and now they're dying and I have to deal with it. Maybe we don't need that second arrow. Maybe we can go, humans are imperfect. Here we are. We'll do the best we can. And that's just an easier way to do this. To build on that, I, you know, I wonder, right, confronting someone in the grocery store, never going to be productive, but I, I do think we need spaces to vent because you see that all around you and then you go into the hospital and you see the, the sheer numbers of people coming in, how sick they are, you know, half the hospital or more um, is, is full of patients with COVID. And, and so that, that striking dichotomy of you're outside of the hospital it's and very difficult. their actions, right? That, that, hey, there's no pandemic. We're just hanging out, doing our thing. And then um, the contrast in the hospital. So I do, I do think we need a way to reconcile that or at least vent um, because I think that is very mentally taxing. Cognitive dissonance, you. right? Basic yeah. cognitive dissonance. Humans don't like it. Yeah. Adara. How do we fix this? How do we, right? I want to vent. I want to spend the next 30 minutes with you guys saying how much last week sucked. And that's not going to be productive as Sharmila lays out. How do we then, acknowledging this is going to take a while, I don't want to stop being a doctor. I want to continue to enjoy being a hospitalist. I want to continue to come on Twitter and hang out with you guys and learn cool stuff and talk about whatever we talk about. Mm-hmm. We need to have at least the beginning constructs of things that are helpful, of things that are actionable. Adara, you and I, have, you've been on this with my podcast before. We've interacted a fair amount. You are someone who is very intentional. That's one of the things I've observed about you. And with your intention, what are things that you have identified as being effective and sustainable at reconciling the dichotomy that Samir and Sharmila laid out for us? I think honestly, uh, compassion, um, you know, I, I, I try to maintain a sense of compassion for those who I believe are making the wrong choice. And, and I know that, um, for the, you know, the patients who come in and they decided to not get a vaccine, um, and now they're sick and now they need to be intubated and now their loved ones are sick. It would be very easy for me to demonstrate my frustration and my anger. Um, you know, maybe not with words, obviously, but, you know, even with like an, an eye roll or the way I, I offer them something like that's that would be easy to do. Right. Um, the hardest thing is to really try to, to not judge these people for making what I think is the wrong choice and to continue to show them compassion and to, to try to rebuild that trust back into medicine. Because I think a lot of people who are non-vaccinated or unvaccinated, um, anti-vaxxers, whatever word we're going to use they, they, they feel really judged by our community. And, um, so I start with compassion and listening. And I think that doesn't, that obviously does not solve everything, but, but it it creates this space where they're still welcomed into our, into our, um, you know, our clinics, our emergency rooms, our trauma bays, wherever it is that we're practicing. And we're going to continue the conversation with them in a non-judgmental way. I mean, there's not a single, single solution, but I think having compassion still allows me to have a sense of purpose at work. And, and the day I feel like I am not compassionate for my patients is the day I start to doubt whether or not I should be a doctor. So, you know, I, I, I that has given me a sense of connectivity to the field. 
Samir, is that a teachable skill? Is this something, right, that we, we're looking for solutions and we're going to, we're going to kind of scratch and claw and fight to find them and then to disseminate them in ways that are constructive and, and kind of sticky, whether you're a medical student, a resident, a fellow, an attending, whatever the case. How, how would you like to see us take ideas that are good and smart and generalize them? What is this pathway for us to do that so we can preserve our workforce? Yeah, I, you know, I think I do think it is teachable. Um, sometimes it's just a reminder. Right. This has been a stressful, difficult time, and it's easy for folks to lose their way every once in a while. And sometimes it's just a, a pat on the back and, you know, hey, that interaction didn't go so well. Let's take a step back and, and think about what prompted you to react in that way. Um, I, think, I think it's important to remind people, you know, what they love about medicine. Um, you know, why did you go into this field in the first place? What attracted you? Um, and, and I think those reminders are really important and really powerful. I do, I do worry that those can only take you so far, um, right? If, if the pandemic doesn't abate some point in the near future, I, I worry we're going to see the same sorts of attrition that we've seen at, at an accelerated pace. And then, and then building on what Sharmila alluded to earlier about some of the long-term problems resulting from this, what is our healthcare system going to look like if all of the folks who have been affected by COVID now have a um, alteration in their career trajectory because they're no longer able to perform as they were before? If, if not now or in a year, say 15 or 20 years, we still don't know what the longer-term consequences of this illness are. And if that takes healthcare workers disproportionately out of the workforce, we have an even bigger problem than we do now. Sharmila, from your from a strategic perspective, from a from a lofty perspective, when we acknowledge that the physician workforce before this started ran on very narrow margins in terms of staffing, in terms of everybody running at 110 RPM, you know, in the red all times. That's just the normal course of action in this profession. From a strategic perspective, where does the energy and effort come to buttress our workforce, to build it back up, not to have you say, Dr. Disanayaka, we need you to work harder, but to say, this is what we're acknowledging has happened. And here's how it can be a little bit easier for you what are the things that you think, where are the levers to pull to start that? So, so to me, uh, every crisis is an opportunity, right? That's been one of the pillars I've used in leadership. And so while COVID is a terrible crisis, it is an opportunity. You know, we didn't need a pandemic to understand that we needed to ensure physicians, nurses, and every other healthcare worker is valued better for what they do. And we saw what happened when nurses were, right? Which is why everyone's leaving to now do the same job elsewhere and get paid double. Good for them. That's that's fine. You know, it, it is what it is. It's not the best way to fix that problem. But I can assure you, I'm guessing nursing salaries are going to be higher and deserve so for a while. So, you know, when I went to 12-hour shifts, which is one of the things I've done in surgery and trauma surgery that's fairly well recognized, is instead of doing overnight 24-hour call, doing 12-hour shifts like ER physicians and hospitalists have done for a long time because you're much smarter than us. Um, you know, it was because, not because I thought patients were in danger or anything else. It was because I wanted to make sure 
that surgeons were being valued for what they do. And if you're doing a full-time job between the hours of 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. seeing patients operating, that's a full-time job. That's not, it needs to be compensated and staffed appropriately. This hasn't changed anything, right, Mark? I mean, it's the same thing. We need to be compensated and valued appropriately. What I'm suggesting is not stratospheric salaries for everyone, not at all, but appropriate work hours and appropriate structures and appropriate support. Um, you know, I, I will, I'm very open. I pay academic salaries and I tell very many people I recruit, that, yeah, you could definitely go elsewhere and be paid more, 100%, not even going to try to argue that. But you won't find a more supportive team that'll help you when you need it and that'll support you and that'll have humane work hours and, and where you really will be happy to come to work and you'll be paid a fair salary, absolutely fair, not going to try to like, you know, cheat you. But, you know, it's not stratospheric. And, and I recruit and people come because there are enough people that really want to do a good job. And just like Adara referred to, also do other things and have other interests and have the time to do that. So I think if our community would just really imbibe that and be consistent in that, you know, pandemic or no pandemic, we could still survive uh, and, and do well. I think the financial compensation part is, is interesting because if we're going to the voices of social media, that is what the people want, right? They want their loans forgiven. They want salaries increased. And, and I think that there is a huge benefit to that. I think that will keep people feeling empowered, feeling recognized, feeling heard. So I, I would, I would uh, agree with everything that you just said. I think the other thing that should be included is also just pay time off. That, you know, if someone feels like they need to take a, a break or they need to recover from COVID, they don't have, they shouldn't have to worry about the financial implications of those choices. And in medicine, excuse me, I have a cough myself, right? In medicine, we're so expected, we're expected to be um, um, very um, quickly able to just self-sacrifice and to, to take one for the team. And, and we're trained, we're conditioned to do that, right? I mean, I'm sure we've all been in conversations where someone, maybe it was you, maybe it was someone next to you said, I've never called in sick, right? I've never called in sick. And we've been in these conversations that are reflections of how we've been conditioned to be dedicated to our jobs. And, and honestly, to me, dedication to the job is being, being present for myself, for my team and for my patients. But only when I am, and, 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 am in, in a fit physically and mentally fit position to do that. And so I, I would want to normalize Time off, but I want that to be paid time off, not just for doctors, but for nurses, for techs, for everyone who's 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 in this hospital dedicating their lives to the field. There's some some good comments that align with what you're saying as well. Robin Hood and Syed said there's zero reward in robbing yourself of being yourself. You guys are a lot farther ahead where you are than I was in my career. And I look back on the that mindset of, you know, we don't call in sick, we don't do these things. And and it wasn't of service to anything I've come to realize except my own ego. Um, and then being able to say, I'm now one of these people who can say all of this nonsense about how tough I am. When in reality, it was just me trying to flex to measure up to a, a standard that is ethereal and entirely unattainable. So I think for us to pivot that and start to say, we're whole people just like everybody else. Yes, this job is a, is a wonderful profession. We dedicate a, a great amount of ourselves to it. In order to keep doing that, the whole person does need to be taken care of. Um, Samir, do you feel like that is becoming more of a normalized part of discourse in our profession? Or is this me, because I follow all of you on Twitter and I like to talk with you and we text, is this me hearing it in the echo chamber? Or is it becoming 
normalized on a national level? I think normalized is probably too strong of a word. Okay. I would say that it, it's becoming increasingly recognized. Okay. Um, and and mental health is becoming um, uh, less stigmatizing. Okay. Um, but I don't think we're anywhere close where we need to be. That one of the things we tried to roll out in our in in our division was instead of you know right now all mental health counseling is opt in. Um, what I was trying to do was make it opt out. So the default, the normal is you have a session. And then if you need additional sessions or additional time, then you, you continue with that counselor or you have a referral. Um, so make that the normal. And, and the big challenge was there just simply weren't enough mental health professionals mm -hmm. to have that sort of staffing model. Um, and so I think, I think it's a, it's a, Increasingly recognized problem. I'd say oh, sure. same thing, Mark, because you know yeah. we've we've had I've had surgeons now travel from uh, different parts of the country, and they've actually come to visit because you get requests all the time. Send me a call schedule so I can figure it out. And I'm like, you won't figure it out. There's so many variables. But come, <laughs> let's talk. We can tell you what we do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so people are interested, and they want to know how they can build in. Samir mentioned excess capacity. He's absolutely right. You have to build in capacity, right? Because otherwise, how do you do paid time off if you don't build an excess capacity? So all of this has to work and it has to happen. More people are interested, but it's not the normal, but it's getting better. Yeah. I've been affiliated with two medical groups in my career, both in California. Neither one of them is what we would kind of colloquially term academic. They would be non-academic practices, big practices, many hundreds of physicians in both of them. And we're miles behind that. Um, these are people who I love dearly. They're my teammates. They're my friends. They're my colleagues. They're family. And the way I see us working then and now frightens me. Um, there's zero margin. The hours are unbelievable. Um, it's, it's, and then you overlay. That was before the pandemic. And now we're in the, the rigor of the pandemic as well. Um, you know, as we move into this last part of our discussion, I want to invite people in the panel, in the, in the audience to start putting some ideas forward too. that for me is one of the things that worries me the most is the, what we expect of ourselves and the, uh, organizations that we're a part of response to it. What we expect of ourselves, I think right now is still driving a lot of this. We're just, we just work harder. We just work faster. We just work more to pivot from that is a critical step. Um, and it's, it's the work of generations because from what I see uh, it, it, over the school, I've been a hospital now for 16 years. Um, we're miles behind where you all are miles. We will be in trouble when the altruism runs out. And, yeah. and I, and I think with every wave, this was mentioned earlier, we're seeing less of that. And, and we're hearing more of a, you know, <clears throat> I think we're placing blame on, on a lot of people who are not following guidelines. And, and um, there's a lot of, you know, um, conflicting information, even within medicine. I'll, I'll tell you one story where on my last shift, I walked into a room with um, a medical student, a, a tech, me and a nurse and the patient. And all five of us had different degrees of protection. Some of us had just a surgical mask. Some had two surgical masks. Some had an N95 and a face. I mean, and so the medical, the, the patient asked, who has it right? Who, who has the correct amount of PPE right now? I thought that was such a good question because no one had ever asked that. I mean, we've been doing this for two years and you can sit next to a colleague 
and they're wearing i mean i've had some one colleague wearing like the full like fit like i don't know what yeah. it is it's like an n95 with like these filters yeah and 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 then i'm just wearing a surgical mask and so that can be very confusing for patients who are like trying to understand what they should be doing and they're looking for guidance um and 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 so i think to me a lot of a lot of, of misinformation needs to be halted um and that that's obviously out of our hands but i but i would hope that what we see with large corporations within social media and outside of it is more control over information that's being spread that's incorrect yeah yeah now, I, as we move into this last kind of 15 minutes that we all have here there's a there's 20 plus attendees and there's the three of us so for those of you who are in the crowd uh, i'll invite you ideas and solutions things that are actionable that you would like to see please do share those because we want to kind of allow some space for while we vent, we still want to be constructive. We still want to be problem solving. And this is the place to do it. And I want to work with our panelists here. Let's just kind of go across and, and think about what is one thing of the many things that you'd like to see. What is one thing that for you feels actionable, feels like it could be implemented kind of in the next quarter that would have a broad and lasting impact. And we can discuss each one a little bit. We've got a little bit more time. Samir, I'll start with you. Actionable, rapid deployment, broad impact. So two things, a testing center on every corner, Okay. right? So, so if you think right now a child is sick, what does a parent have to do to get a test? Uh, if they don't have the flexibility, if they're an hourly worker rather than salary, um, they have to take time off work. And for some families living at the, at the margins, um, they may not be able to afford to lose that income. So that child may never get tested and that child may remain in whatever setting they're in and lead to other cases. So I think that's one. The other is widespread distribution of high quality masks. It shouldn't be that, hey, I can wear an N95 because I can afford to buy one or I can afford to buy 10. Um, these are pretty expensive. And and so I think we need to make masks, high quality masks, widely available and, and honestly not put a cap on, on how many masks a family can take, right? Things happen. They get dirty. They get wet. You leave them somewhere. They get crumpled up. You know, I think like many of you, you know, if you look at the floor of my car, it's just littered with, with a huge heap of masks. And so I think these are things that we know will contribute to ending the pandemic. And, and it can't be your ability to do these things shouldn't depend on your income. I think those are great perspectives. Sharmila, for you, low-hanging fruit, actionable, deployable, with a broad impact. What would you like to see happen? Well, well you know, the, the big picture is if we could let not corporatize healthcare and have CEOs have billion-dollar profits while the rest of Trouble. That would be my real ask. But since you've asked for actionable and small and low-hanging fruit, I'll let that one go. Um, I actually think uh, childcare on site is probably in that category. And you know, if you had to do one thing that would make this so much better when people have to look after their kid and also earn a living, on-site childcare to any employer that has more than X number of employees, you know, especially in healthcare, especially at large corporations, I see that as a no-brainer. And truthfully, a lot of people have done it, but not enough because, yes, it's expensive, but it's not that expensive. 
And it really would make such a difference, especially when schools are on, they're off, they're virtual, they're this, they're that. I mean, I, I have no idea how parents manage. I, I really don't. And I mean, I know my friends, I don't have any children, but I have friends with children and my friends tend to be physicians with means. They're struggling. So I can't even imagine how someone who doesn't have that income level, who can't afford to pay for help, I don't know how people are surviving. So that would be my one ask. I think it's a great one. Dr. Annie Andrews came in with an all caps agreement. We've got a bunch of people saying yes. I do have a question for you, Charmila. We have a question from Twitter from um, at Padma Pandey regarding uh, surgical training for medical students, because there's a group of students that are seeing only limited spectrum of disease because COVID has overwhelmed the curriculum. Will they be playing catch up in their surgical training and exposure to surgical specialties in residency? Yes, one of the many things that I'm very sad about. So um, I will tell you, we have worked really hard. One of the things I'm proudest of is through this pandemic, through the entire misery, except for three weeks, I think, we do all, even if it's elective, if it's time sensitive because of the diagnosis, infection, uh, cancer, we did all cancer cases. We only literally stopped for, I think it was three weeks where we didn't have PPE in the OR. Um, But through the pandemic, we kept that open. Some things matter. So thankfully, because we had a hospital that was willing to support that and work through that, I'm very proud of them. Don't agree with everything they do, but I'm very proud of what they did for that. By keeping the doors open to those diagnoses, we were able to keep our surgery residents, get their numbers. And ergo, the med students rotating with us also were fortunate. I know plenty of people across the country where the surgery residents, the ENT residents, and everyone else is deployed to be COVID residents. Uh, and the med students, you know, kind of follow along with that. And so I am very worried about uh, students that trained at places that couldn't keep the doors open through no fault of their own to surgical disease. I mean, we fought tooth and nail in that first uh, surge to stay open to uh, surgical emergencies, because to me, it was appalling that someone could die of a bowel obstruction in, in a small town. This happened uh, in a small town because they couldn't access surgical care. That's a problem I can fix in under an hour and the patient can be out soon. It's life-saving. And they lost that spot because someone with a disease that they may not have even survived. So we were so messed up for quite a while. And, and I don't think enough people focused on collateral damage. So yes, it's a huge concern. And I think it's ultimately going to come down to the institutions that trained and how much effort they put to compensate. Yeah, it's going to be a big one to unroll for sure. Adara, let's pivot to you. It's your turn. We've covered high quality, widely available masks. I like the 3M N95. It's kind of the rectangle one Mm -hmm. that goes over the top and over the thing so it doesn't pull on my ears, floods under my chin. I'm good to go. That's my favorite. I think we've all kind of figured out my favorites. My son likes the KN95 pink with a horse sticker, and he's all set for the day. (laughs) He puts the horse sticker on, he's off to school, and he won't take it off till he gets home. Um, But Adara, for you, and then we have Child care on site from Sharmila, which, yes, please. What would be for you actionable, rapidly deployable, broad impact? Well, number one was going to be child care because I'm biased. I have three kids under five. Um, And so none of them are vaccinated and they've been in and out of school since November, especially with Omicron, um, mostly home. Um, But aside from that, I I would honestly say control of medical misinformation, as if you haven't heard me mention it a bunch here or at the very least, united information from physicians and scientists and, and experts, um, because I, I think that can really be confusing for, for patients, for the general population, if they're reading various different things that are definitely incorrect from non-experts 
and even some sort of conflicting things from people within the field. So, you know, I would love to see some sort of control over information that is correct, um, incorrect. And then I would also like to see some sort of a cohesion amongst the experts that are out there on TV, writing papers, creating policies, so that patients feel like there's a united front and that we're not all with different voices um, saying things that could be slightly incorrect or slightly different from the other. I love that. And it actually kind of segues into what mine is. I, I, I'm, I'm going to have two as well. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go with Samir. One of them is the broad one that could be act, act, implemented tomorrow. I, this is, this is Mark Shapiro only. I campaigned hard for president Joe Biden. I wanted him to be elected. And one of the things I was excited about was student loan debt forgiveness. I think the stroke of a pen could make educational debt forgiveness go away very quickly, or at least be reduced. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would be extraordinarily impactful, not just for people who are currently in training, but for at least two generations of physicians after I'm 16 years in, I paid my debt off uh, four years ago. So it took a long time. So I think that that would be extraordinarily impactful. What I would like to see happen is uh, media training for physicians and healthcare professionals. I would mm-hmm. like to see every resident get some amount of media training so that they, every attending get some amount of media training so that they understand how to interface with social media, so that they understand how to get in front of a camera and be interviewed, so that they understand how to go on a podcast and and be interviewed, you know, interview someone, give an interview, all of these sorts of things. We need a legion of people to be able to be camera ready, to be microphone ready, to be editorial ready, to communicate effectively. There are thousands and thousands of us. We're only hearing from a smidgen. Uh, Megan Ranney, you know, she was, she's on, she's very, very forward facing and she's clear about it. She can't do it herself. It can't just be one or two or a handful of people on CNN. We need thousands and thousands of physicians who are, who are able to translate the extraordinary training, compassion and commitment that they have into something that's relatable to the public where the public is. So on television, in editorials and on social media, that training is there. It must be implemented. For me, that's the one that in the next three months, just training up thousands of physicians to do that, I think would be very, very exciting. But that's me because I'm obviously biased. I host a podcast. No, I, I think that's stuff. I think that's really important. And I think it's important to see doctors also um, holding political um, positions as well, creating policies at a large at a large level. I mean, I think there's so much to the MD um, um, or, or DO. DO degree or DO yep. degree. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, that, that, uh, that lends itself to really become, uh, you know, expert in multi, multi, multiple disciplines. Samir reflect. We've got four minutes left. Send help, help send us out. Each of you gets to help send us out with something. Send us out my friend. All right. Um, I think we need to figure out how to hold purveyors of misinformation accountable. I don't think we have good enough enforcement mechanisms, and I acknowledge it's a slippery slope, but I think that is a major contribution to some of the, some of the issues that we are experiencing today. Adara, send us out. Don't forget why you have the position you have, what it was that led you there, what it is that keeps you coming back, and really channel that inner compassion, forgive yourself, forgive others, and try to connect with the people around you. Mm, love it. Sharmila, send us out. All right. So, you know, it's wave after wave of COVID. And you can either take your surfboard and run madly and furiously at the wave. And, and, and that isn't probably going to end well. Or you can learn to surf. 
And I think learning to surf is by far the wisest approach. And part of that means learning to forgive yourself, learning to give yourself time and take the time you need to be better at it. Understand you won't win every battle, but surf the waves because uh, what else are you going to do? That was a California analogy just for you. (laughs) I appreciated that. Thank you. I felt it. I'm a native. I felt it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Warm and sunny today. You all give me hope. This was amazing to all of you in the audience. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us. If you want to check hashtag ETS chat on Twitter, uh, there's some live tweeting that's there and we can all go back and reflect. But if you also want to just shut it down for the night, please do so. Samir, Sharmila, and Adara, you all are amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you to Journal of Hospital Medicine and Society of Hospital Medicine for helping drive this. Brett Radler and his team, appreciate you all. And to you all on the panel, you all are wonderful. Thank you so much. My thanks once again to... Samir, Adara, and Sharmila for joining me in this incredible roundtable conversation. I am so glad we get to do these things. I hope we don't have to do it again, or at least do it under very different circumstances and a very different set of talking points, but this is valuable. There's good stuff in here, and I think it's critical that we're able to leverage the stuff, memorialize it, and look back on it to see what we're able to actually accomplish. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu forward slash C-H-E-E. Thank you also to the Society of Hospital Medicine and the Journal of Hospital Medicine as well for collaborating on this. It's great to have people who, when you send them an idea, they help you refine it, they help you implement it, and then they help bring it to fruition. Totally awesome. You can check out the full archive of Explore the Space podcast as well at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can subscribe on all the usual podcast platforms and definitely hit me on social media at ETS show on Twitter at explore the space show on Instagram. Also the explore the space merchandise store is open. Please do go to www.explorethespaceshow forward slash merch and see what we've got there. I'm really proud of it. It seems like people are really enjoying what they're finding. So please do take a look if you're interested. Thanks so much to you for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. We will be back soon with more great content. So until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.